This podcast is from the RAND Corporation, a nonprofit institution that helps improve policy and decision-making through research and analysis. Visit www.rand.org to learn more about us and to explore RAND's free online library of more than 10,000 policy reports and commentaries. Welcome to the policy panel discussion that kicks off the Party RAND Graduate School Commencement Weekend. I'm Susan Marquis, Dean of Party RAND and Vice President for Emerging Policy Research and Methods for the RAND Corporation. I'll be serving as today's moderator. This panel discussion will focus on criminal justice issues in California and the nation. Let me introduce the panelists. Chief Charlie Beck serves as the Chief of Police for the Los Angeles Police Department. He oversees 13,000 employees who work to protect a city population of 3.8 million people. Chief Beck was appointed to the department in 1977. He rose through the ranks, becoming chief of detectives, and was then appointed as the 56th chief of police. We will recognize Chief Beck's leadership in Los Angeles with an honorary degree at our commencement ceremonies. Dr. Joan Petersilia is the Adelbert H. Sweet Professor of Law at Stanford Law School and the faculty co-director for the Stanford Criminal Justice Center. She has spent over three decades studying criminal justice agencies' performance and has been advising California's elected officials on how prison realignment is working. Dr. Peter Cilia was recently honored with the prestigious Stockholm Prize in Criminology for her work on prisoner reentry. Dr. Peter Cilia was part of RAND for 20 years as a senior researcher and director of the RAND Criminal Justice Program. We will also recognize her work with an honorary degree. Dr. Angela Hawken is an Associate Professor of Economics and Policy Analysis and the James Q. Wilson Fellow at Pepperdine University. Her research focuses on drugs, crime, and corruption. Dr. Hawken is a co-author of Drugs and Drug Policy, What Everyone Needs to Know. Most importantly, Dr. Hawken is an alumna of the Party Rand Graduate School. All right, I'm now going to turn to a few questions so we can actually hear from the panelists. But I'm going to start... Uh, this evening with a good news story. And this is the downward trend in crime across the U.S. and in California over the past decade. Before discussing the actual downward trend, I want to step back and actually ask the question, what should we be looking for? What metrics should we be tracking? How does the public know if our society is actually safer? Are we talking about the number of people in jail, crime rates? Um, I'm going to turn to, I think, a Joan or Angela, uh, we'll start with Joan first. How would you recommend we uh, measure the effectiveness of policing and a reduction in crime? Well, it's certainly not the number of people who are incarcerated. And so we think about how to measure uh, criminal justice in terms of justice. And that has to do with kind of the performance of the justice system, police, courts, corrections. Are we giving equitable sentences? Are we delivering justice that does respect to victims? Um, and then we think about public safety. Are community members actually feeling safer? And that has to do with kind of the crime rate. But so it has, in my view, two, two things. The performance of the justice system. Are we, are we delivering justice in a way that, that is appropriate? Mm-hmm. And secondly, do community members feel that? Um, do they feel safer? Do they feel that the justice system is, is working for them? And so it's, it's justice. And it, it seems to me it's those two components. Okay. Angela. Well, apparently it's because I've been stuck in traffic and I'm now in a foul mood. But I'm going to have to mute the the optimism just a tad. Um, Crime trends in California are now tipping in the opposite direction. They're tipping up. Um, I don't know why that's happening. Many people are pointing to realignment. I think it's too soon to do that. Although there's some compelling work to to suggest that at least the property side of that might be true. Um, so, you know, I think we are going to have to take stock. It's, it's, it's fun to be a researcher and fun to be a, someone in, introducing new policies when it's a good new, good new scenario of a downward trend. But right now it looks as though that might be turning. Um, I would mirror exactly what you just heard in terms of what should, what, what should we care about. There should be less crime, less punishment, and the communities should be able to really respect uh, law enforcement and the criminal justice system. So I think those would be very similar to the sorts of things we just heard. Well, I have promised we're not going to move up and down the row for every question, but this is one where it's actually quite useful to do so because now I'd like to turn to you, uh, Charlie, and talk a little bit about what have you seen in L.A.? What have you seen uh, on the streets? Well, you know, first first I have to answer the question you posed earlier, which is what should we measure? Mm -hmm. And 
you know, what we should measure is something that is consistent, something that has been measured over time, so we have some basis for comparison. And in, in the 1930s, the FBI defined the UCR crime codes, and, and that's generally what we measure. That's so that you can have a method to measure crime that translates throughout the United States, because every state has different codes, different uh, levels of um, of uh, penalty for for similar acts, but the UCR doesn't. The UCR keeps uh, things similar, so you're always apples to apples. So, uh, UCR crime, eight categories. That's what you should measure, I think. So, um, how are we doing, and 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 what is the state of of Los Angeles? So, Los Angeles is by far the biggest city in California. It's you can take any other four cities, and we're still bigger. And crime in Los Angeles has been down consecutively for this will be the 12th year. And property crime this, so far this year is down almost 7%. So you can look at other places and see where crime is reversing, but that's not the case in Los Angeles. And as a matter of fact, last year, in 2013, we suffered 251 homicides. That's a lot of homicides. But we've never been below 300 before in, in my lifetime. Good to live in L.A. You're going to be in California. <laughs> well, all right. So we've brought up, Angela, you brought up the issue just a moment ago of realignment. Let's talk about that. It's a mostly local in terms of a state issue, but in fact there are implications for other states that are, find themselves in the same situation that California has. Um, Joan, do you want to talk a little bit about realignment? What is it? And uh, why did the California legislature turn in this direction? So realignment um, is shorthand for a major piece of legislation that California passed in May of 2011. And it was in response to the Supreme Court ordering California prisons to get down to 137% of design capacity. We had at the time of the Supreme Court ruling about 165,000 prisoners locked up. And the Supreme Court was saying, you have enough space for about 125,000. So we had two options in California. We could have built more prisons. So the Supreme Court wasn't saying you had to release people. It said you've got to either one of two things, build more capacity or lower the prison population. We were in a huge recession. If you remember in 2011, the legislature did not feel it could expand capacity. So it chose to pass a bill called public safety realignment. And what that did shorthand is say that nobody that was uh, not convicted of a serious, violent, or sex crime could go to California prison. So everybody else, non-violent, non-serious, non-sex, would have to be punished through jail as the maximum sentence. They could not go to prison. So we diverted about half of all convicted felons from prison to jail by changing the penal code. We actually took 500 crimes and it was the most massive piece of legislation in terms of criminal justice, certainly in my lifetime, and some people say in the last 200 years. It took the penal code and changed 500 different crimes for which you used to be able to go to prison, and it said after October 1, 2011, which is when it was uh, in effect, you can no longer go to prison for those crimes. So we downsized drugs, property, auto theft, all kinds of lower-level crimes and said they can no longer go to prison. And that set, sent the prison population declining in a massive way. Today, we have about 120,000 prisoners uh, locked up. That's, that's a major downsize when you think at the height we had 175, and the population has continued to grow in California. So we've downsized our prison population through this realignment uh, initiative. Well. I assume, not being from California, there must have been an awful lot of time to plan for this kind of tradition and how that would actually work. Um, Charlie, do you want to talk about how much time you were given and resources you were given to adjust to this change? Well, I read about it in the paper, so... <laughs> I, actually, it wasn't, it wasn't quite that fast, but it, it was almost that fast. Um, you know, I think the, the governor and the legislature found themselves between a rock and a hard place and wanted to do something demonstrative, and they did. Mm. Uh, so prison populations have declined, but, you know, prison is not the only form of incarceration. The, you know, county jails is the other form, and county jails are, 
much fuller than they've ever been. So, you know, it probably doesn't matter to very many people in the audience where somebody is locked up as long as they're, the streets are safer. But the, the big tragedy is that the counties weren't really ready for it. They, the programs that, that have taken so long to craft in the prison system don't exist in the county system. The county system, at least um, in California, is not designed to keep anybody for over a year. And so that's really a temporary time. And, and most of the folks that, that cycle through county are very short term, several months, you know, or, or even less. And so to to mix these populations where you have somebody that has a, a, a significant sentence but is now sentenced to, to county jail for multiple years. I mean, we have people that have been sentenced to, to L.A. County Jail for up to 12, 14 years now. Oh and, that, and so that's a very different way of looking at it. What, you, what really happens is this is, you know, is exactly what it seems to be. It's is a cost shift. It's, it's moving the cost from the state to local entities, and in and in some cases, it's a, an unfunded mandate. the 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 funding that the the state gives to counties is about a third to a half of what they would have spent to do the same thing in the in the prison system. So, it's impossible to provide the same services, and and many times, uh, people get no supervision when they get out. And they get no reentry services, and I know that that, uh, that Angela will talk about that. And, and there are a number of things that are going on locally that that are um, that are positive in that regard. But everybody's definitely been in a state of catch up. Now, the things that were predicted, at least in Los Angeles, haven't really happened. I mean, the crime rate has not shot up. Uh, you know, we do not have endless lists of. Uh, of uh, high-end crimes that are committed by AB 109 folks. We have some, and we have some very serious crimes that, that, that may have been stopped by some type of, um, uh, some type of tail or, or, or monitoring and supervision with, with some of these folks. But we've been able to manage it. But it doesn't come at no cost. You know, it, it comes right out of the resources of the Los Angeles Police Department, which you all pay for. Well, Joan, you've looked statewide on this. Have you seen, is there a consistent approach to realignment across, uh, across the state, across the various counties? No, one of the things that realignment did was was give counties the permission. And we have 58 counties, and there's 58 different approaches to realignment. So some of the smaller counties, as, as the chief said, uh, the state gave the counties about half the dollar amount that, that they would have spent at the state level. So we're spending in California about $54,000 a year per prisoner. And so the state is giving roughly about $25,000 per year per diverted prisoner to now the counties and the cities. Um, and so counties can do whatever they want. I mean, what, what's kind of interesting about realignment is the governor told the counties, we're going to give you a check, and virtually you can spend it however you want. Mm. So some counties are building up their jail capacity, building in programs. Um, they were much more crowded when realignment went into effect. Other counties are investing heavily in programming, mental health services, drug courts. Um, and so what, what the best thing about realignment, I mean, there's a lot of things that, that I think are wrong with realignment, but the best thing about realignment was that it gave counties local control for how they wanted to approach their offender population with their services, you know, what kind of crime problem they had, what kind of offenders they felt they had, and what kind of services they thought their offenders needed for reentry. Uh, success and so it's it's a massive experiment. The the bad news, I mean, the real bad news in an audience like this, is there was no statewide evaluation funded of any of it, and so it was the largest legislation that has ever. It's a billion dollars a year for taxpayers, and there is no statewide evaluation and no mandated outcome measures uh, that are required to be sent back to the state legislature. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's hard to even know where to go with that. Yeah, I'm sorry. actually going to go a different direction, I think. And that is, obviously there was pressure from the Supreme Court decision uh, that resulted in the realignment legislation. <coughs> but I think there's also been a move to reduce prison populations in general, um, whether in California or in other states. Angela, uh, 
what I've been interested in in making a connection here is with your work on the HOPE program in Hawaii, this idea of swift but certain and the somewhat surprising results that have come out of that. Could you tell us a bit about that program and the evaluation, uh, the trials you've run and what you've found? Sure. Um, it's actually it's an interesting exercise of be careful to be a researcher and what people do with what you've done. Um, there was a, a program that started in Hawaii by a judge who was really frustrated that people were coming before him in court with long lists of violations, sometimes 16 positive tests for methamphetamine, and nothing had been done. And the implication of that was that somehow continued methamphetamine use was okay, but we got really mad with you when you use it the 17th time, so we're now sending you to 10 years in prison. Which, by the way, was exactly how their system was working, and it's typical in many jurisdictions for this to happen. You rack up long lists of violations, and then suddenly really draconian action is taken because you're now looking at this long, long history of violations rather than the most current episode of use. So he decided he was going to transform the system, swift, certain, but small responses to violations to, to coach good behavior. And he implemented the program in 2004, and we've now just finished the 10-year follow-up evaluation. Um, the problem is, I think, across the country, many places were looking for something that was going to solve all of their budget problems. You had one small, small, small program that bubbled up in Hawaii that was glommed onto by other jurisdictions, but I think a lot of learning really still needed to be done. Um, it's, it's still a new program, and uh, I think only now we're starting to learn where, where this program will work for what sorts of offenders. And from the beginning, we were always very clear, this is really for a high-risk population. It's a different population to what most drug courts are serving. Um, most of our, our subjects in our studies aren't eligible for other programming because they have high-risk behaviors in their histories. Um, the results there were very good. It's been replicated. To be honest, right now, Hawaii is almost irrelevant. Washington State is, ha had their statewide rollout a couple of years ago, so they're really now the state to look at. And they'll be a lot of learning to be done. The problem, of course, is replication. We've seen really big problems in other, in other parts of the country getting this up and running with fidelity. We're now learning a lot about fidelity monitoring and actually doing things right. It turns out that you have to not only monitor the probationers and parolees, you really have to monitor the officials looking after the probationers and the parolees. So it's swift and certain sanctions for the offenders, but it's now also swift and certain corrective behaviors for the operators. Um, and that really requires changes in technology, and we really are starting to use technology in different ways in terms of making sure our system is delivering this sort of programming well. But it is, it, it's, re it's really a, a different paradigm. The idea is close supervision, a short list of requirements, but we actually monitor you, and every time there's a misstep, some action is taken, but it's small. We now see sanctions that could be you know, a, th a thoughtful essay on why my drug use is really hurting my family as a <laughs> sanction delivered in court. Or, and they really hate those, by the way. Many guys would rather do two nights in jail than have to think about why they're really hurting their <laughs> wife and children. Um, and we're also seeing sanctions like two hours in a holding facility and then other places where it might be two or three days. But the idea is to see what is the smallest dose of punishment that gets someone's attention. And by the way, and the RAND data has shown something similar with 24-7, we have not yet found the smallest dose of punishment. We keep taking it lower and we keep getting the same result. That's... That's fascinating. I, I want to think we have one experiment there where we're learning, we're, we're taking lessons learned in Hawaii, applying it to other states. Washington State seems to be leading the way now. I'm going to let them lead the way one more time, <laughs> and that gets us to marijuana legal, legalization. Uh, so we have Colorado, we have Washington State. It would not be surprising if we had a, a marijuana legalization initiative on the ballot in California. Um, I, I am going to start with you again, Angela, on this, because what lessons should we take away from what we've seen so far? Oh, it's terrible being the author or author race of a book called Marijuana Legalization, What Everyone Needs to Know, as though somehow I'm a global authority. Uh, let's t let me tell you what I do know. Um, and that is that if I, was, if I was in the state of California right now, I'd be scrambling to learn everything we can possibly learn from Washington and Colorado. I'd mostly look to Colorado as an exercise in what not to do and Washington as an exercise in what to mimic. And even there, I'd be really careful. Uh, there are so many unknowns. We are treading into un unknown territory. This is different from medical marijuana. This is legal commercial sales of marijuana. Uh, big business has come out. Uh, this is when you look. W w w it's so frustrating being a researcher with mar in, that's interested in mar marijuana legalization because as soon as you talk about it, everybody giggles. Even the CNN interviewers will giggle as they, enter the t as, as they approach the topic, as though this is, as, as this is kind of funny. It, it isn't. This is a very serious issue. We've never faced this before. What's going to happen, we don't know. We do have two states that are allowing us to really have a testing laboratory opportunity. Even the federal government now is using that term. We're thinking of 
these as testing laboratories. The federal government doesn't seem as though it's going to go after either one of those states. Last week, they re reaffirmed the fact that they do not think that we are even in violation of the international treaties. Um, what we should be doing is thinking carefully about our regulations. What I find very unfunny about mar marijuana right now, and I'm actually, just for the record, if you read the last chapter of the book, I say my, dr my, my drug of choice is gin and tonic. I consume it at least three times a week, and, um, and I know that my drug is more, more harmful than marijuana. So it puts my perspective out there. So I'm, I'm not exactly, you know, I, I'm, I'm relatively tolerant of this movement, but very concerned about some factors that, that are not being regulated as well as they should. There's right now really no move to regulate THC content. Marijuana of today is different from the marijuana of the 1960s. There's also really no move to regulate tightly the fun stuff. If, you're, if you, I have a five-year-old and a two-year-old, if my five-year-old picks up a vodka drink by accident, he's going to spit it out. If he picks up a cigarette by accident, he's going to spit it out. If he finds that brownie that has 10 adult doses in it, he's going to eat the whole cookie. And he's going to find the gummy bears, and he's going to eat all the gummy bears. The products are so fun, I don't think we should allow the fun sort of consumption. So we really need tight regulations to protect our children. And I haven't seen it in, tightly enough in those other two states. I'd like California to get it right. We, need, we have kids to worry about. Well, we've talked about three cases here. We've talked about realignment. We've talked about uh, legalization of marijuana. And we've talked about uh, the swift and certain uh, sanctions approach. In two of these, we're collecting, we're using, we have laboratories. We have uh, state, uh, state pilots, basically, so we can see what happens. We can collect the evidence. We can collect, uh, see what actually happens. We're not doing that with realignment. I want to talk for a minute about the use of research and data and evidence-based practices in criminal justice. And Joan, where have you seen... Uh, research and data evidence be most useful in your experience, uh, and where has it really not played a very valuable role or even a counterproductive role? Well, let me clarify a little bit. Even though the legislature did not require any data, counties, in fact, are collecting data on their own. And what's very interesting is, is that because if you imagine how the county gave, for example, the first year in Los Angeles County, $300 million, and there is a partnership of all the DA, the police chiefs, the sheriffs, the probation, they all come together and decide how to spend that money in their own county. So the check goes to the county and this partnership decides how to allocate it. What's interesting in terms of research that that has spawned is now these agencies are saying, well, why should you get 30%? I could do better in the, let's say, the probation department if you gave me the 30%. And so it's actually set up a, a data competition, if you will, which for the money. Mm -hmm. So that, that we're, now, we're three years into this experiment, this realignment experiment. And what I'm seeing now is counties figuring out their own data metrics so they can make those decisions about who should get the money and how, what they're doing with the money. So often the county boards of supervisors are demanding some... Uh, collection of data. Not consistently, but, but I think you know, that's, that's how we're going to see the expansion of the kind of research and analysis that I think you know, Rand is looking for and what researchers are looking for. Okay. Well, let's talk for just a moment about L.A. So, uh, Charlie, the L.A. Police Department has, been a, has a long had a close relationship with Rand. You've used a number of Rand analyses. You've commissioned some of this work. How do you bring uh, research data evidence-based practices into uh, the, the situational imperatives of policing? Well, I think you, you have to do it in a manner that, uh, that achieves the results that you need. You know, when, when you talk about realignment, as I'll just use that as an example, um, the data is being collected, but it's, there's no consistency to it. You know, when you ask any of the 58 counties what is a, what constitute recidivism, there's 58 different answers. And so there's, you know, you you have to make sure that you're comparing similar outcomes. And and when we use uh, empirical data that that is comes from best practices, you know, we have to make sure that we measure it correctly. And and that is the, that's the hardest thing in 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 government and policing is is comparing across boundaries to see if, if, if what I'm doing really is more effective than, than what somebody else does. 
one of one of our biggest issues with with research space is that sometimes it's not timely enough. I mean, we have emerging issues that require immediate action. I mean, you can't you can't study these things while people are being victimized or or, or dying. Uh, but with the great thing about the partnership with Rand is that they have helped us to do that. You know, um, Los Angeles has had a, a remarkable um, drop in gang crime over the last five years, and it and it comes because of a uh, four pronged approach that is that is different than anything we've ever done before. And while it's inarguably been successful, you know, it, it it's still hard to attach it to those four prongs. You know, there's uh, many, many other things, and that's the, that is the, the beauty of research. So um, what we look for is something that is targeted at real current problems, real issues that, that we have to deal with and find best practices for. Can you uh, think of an example of where research and data have offered up a set of possible solutions or insights that were different from sort of common knowledge, common sense? Well, I think uh, you brought up the the cost of crime study that uh, that uh, Paul Heaton did for uh, out of Rand for the LAPD, and what uh, Paul's research was based on was what does crime actually cost a community, and what is the application of police resource have to do with crime, and you know this is this is long argued cities have to. The police department is the most expensive, far and away, thing that the city of Los Angeles runs. And in most cities, that's exactly the way it is. Policing is very expensive. So when decision makers have to decide, do I want more cops? Do I want more social programs? What, what's truly effective? And, and the research that Rand did uh, showed exact correlations between officers added and reduction in crime and, and drew uh, uh, a line that allowed me to argue for our budget. And, and that's why L.A. has 10,000 cops now is because Rand did it partially. Uh, a lot of arm twisting also. But, <laughs> but, <clears throat> but because Rand did a study and that study didn't come from Charlie Beck, it didn't come from Bill Bratton, it didn't come from the LAPD, it came from a well-valued public policy research institute that says more cops equals less crime, and this is exactly how much one cop will get you. And and that's that was the that was the level of detail that was in that study. Okay. All right, Angela, I saw you taking notes down there. We're clearly saying something that's got your attention. Go ahead. I. I, I I'm going to sound like a little bit. None of you are ever going to want to have dinner with me after this session. <laughs> uh, you know, one of, the, one of the most frustrating expressions I now feel as someone who works with practitioners is the term evidence-based practice. I'm actually really starting to think that that, those, that set of three words is doing more damage in the field than, than many other thought experiments that have preceded it. The, the, the term evidence-based practices for most regular practitioners who aren't skilled academics or skilled researchers implies that we actually have an evidence base underlying these practices that we're distributing. The problem is that the quality of the evidence in many cases is really, really poor underlying the programs that are available. And I think it's really quite scandalous. Some of our national repositories, if you look at the programs that are listed, 58% of the crime ones were posted by proprietors, the people who were selling the product. They've got a positive evaluation that's now in the repository. And some states require that agencies adopt from this list. And I'm not saying this, what you, this is not what I'm implying with you. I don't, the, I don't the, even the, have the a list. Give me an example of why I think we really have to reconsider what we, with, how we use the language surrounding it. Of course I love the idea of evidence-based practice, but get, let's get the language right. I conducted a randomized control trial in a western state that's not to be named. <laughs> and it was a, I loved the program. This is the problem. A lot of our evidence-based practices are programs that feel nice. And I felt good about this too. I loved every single component of this program. We launched the randomized control trial. We found bupkis, nothing, 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 nothing. In fact, we found a slight increase in the rate of arrest for the intervention group compared with the control group. That program, by the way, that I'm not allowed to mention now, is on your repository that your states can choose as an evidence-based practice because they did a customer satisfaction survey and the clinicians really liked it, as did the parolees. 
That's the quality of our evidence base. We have a lot of homework to do before we get it right. And the stakes are high. We're talking about often high-risk offenders who are subjected to the evidence base that often isn't very high-quality evidence. I think we need a, a redo. Well, I'm not going to let you end on that. <laughs> I'm going to ask you for the solution. So what could RAND do? What could uh, the graduates of our school do? What could uh, police departments do to start improving the data that we have, the evidence that we can draw upon? I really like what this guy's doing, to be honest. You know, he said he adopts evidence-based practices and then he looks at his own data um, and then compares it to how other jurisdictions are doing. And that's where I think we really want to be. We want to empower practitioners to take, to take charge of their own knowledge creation. What I think is an, a very embarrassing fact also is that Walmart conducts a 1,000 randomized control trials a month. Subway Sandwiches does nearly that many. Criminal justice does <coughs> five a year. Yeah. Five a year. And they're not that difficult to do. Increasingly, we see practitioners are begging for knowledge creation. They want to be involved. We make it so difficult for them to test things, so expensive to test things. And you know where I'm going with this, right? Mm -hmm. uh, so what I can suggest, is, come play with me. All I want to do is create knowledge. And a lot of things will get wrong, and some things will get right. This year, I'm launching a new center, which is going to be, it's going to kill me, but I'm going to launch it because I'm exhausted. It's called BetaGov. And the idea is government testing. And it's being launched as a center for practitioner-led trials. Practitioners are a wonderful source of knowledge. Let's equip them to test their own programs from small things in terms of operational details to the big ideas. Everything can be subjected to a test. They're itching to start. We have dozens lined up ready to go from text messaging for appointment reminders. Your doctor at 3 p.m. next Tuesday, if you're going to see him, you get a message on the phone saying you're seeing a doctor tomorrow too. Well, our high-risk parolees don't know that they're seeing their person tomorrow, and getting them there on time could be a really good idea. Small things like using technology, subjecting it to testing, everything should be tested. We're there now. Well, with that, that comment, thank Sorry. you very much. No, it was actually perfect, because now we're going to open the floor up, and we're, we welcome both the big idea and the small idea that might actually make a difference. So let's open to questions. Good afternoon. Uh, Susan said, we welcome your questions, so uh, we ask that you raise your hand and we'll come to you with our microphone, and my colleague Evelyn and I will be helping with that. Hi, I'm Ricardo Basurto Davila. I'm a health economist. I'm a, well, I'm a pure GS alum, and I'm a health economist with the Los Angeles County Department of Public Health. Um, I may have the numbers wrong, but uh, I believe with AB 109, LA County is getting something like 50-something million dollars per year, uh, you know, to do, like you say, whatever they want, whatever we want to do with it. Um, and the Board of Supervisors just recently approved $2 billion to build a new jail. Uh, this is a lot of money. And as far as I know, not much of it, or maybe not any of it, is being allocated to diversion reentry programs. Um, our substance abuse program right now is trying very hard to find a way to renew the funding for a women's reentry program for substance abuse offenders. <laughs> Uh, that is apparently extremely cheap and seems to have a good rate of success, uh, although not a good evaluation has made that yet. But uh, I think that's your specialization. Can you talk a little bit about these programs? And, you know. So you're right. I mean, and, and Chief Beck indicated that counties received, in addition to the realignment money, counties received construction money to build new jails. So while the prison population is going down, the jail population is actually increasing. And um, one of the research grants I have is projecting how this will all, you know, a decade from now, will we have the same number of people locked up when we add in the jail plus the prison as we had prior uh, to the realignment and the prison downsizing. We basically show that by about 2017, we'll have almost exactly the same number of people locked up in California as we did before the prison downsizing. They'll just be locked up in jail, um, a higher percentage in jail. So that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Sheriffs will argue and police may argue the same thing. If we think of jail or incarceration as reentry opportunities, which is what you're kind of, could you think of? And it's, it's so, in some ways, offensive uh, to many of us who think that lockup is, is punishment and that no good programming can happen in jails. But if we do a little thought experiment, and I'm actually working pretty closely right now with uh, California Sheriff's Association, there will be 23 new jails built in the next decade in California. And so how do we want those jails to be redesigned for reentry programming. 
can we think of them as being kind of reentry centers where vendors come in to provide services, where visitation with families changes, where we have actually a transition out so that they learn things like, I'm, I'm working with one sheriff right now where we, we're, we're doing a, a design that will take a wing of the jail and in essence teach them cooking teach them transition, how to manage a checkbook, how to, how to do kind of community living um, as kind of a halfway house, but it'll actually be in the jail. And so I think that's kind of the next movement in, in California is that um, it, counties are making their own choices about to build, and they think they need to build. So I guess what I'm trying to do is try to overlay not just building the same old jail, but building in a, a something that has programming that and and also I guess I I reiterate we know when you say it's my area and I I've written a book on on kind of effective reentry strategies for prisoners coming home, but again the evidence base is very weak, um, and part of it is we've never invested in criminal justice research. I think it's a frustration probably with all of us that the topic is as you began so incredibly important. Uh, to citizens, but we almost invest nothing in finding out what works. Um, and so we have a lot of homework to do, but one of the things that we're starting to think about is to um, redesign these jails so that we can start doing some experimentation about services and for different kinds of offenders. Okay. We have a question here on your left. Hi. Um, so I had a question for Angela about the repository of evidence. So the Department of Education has gone kind of in the opposite direction and has a very um, kind of strict standard for what makes it into its repository. And there have been a lot of complaints about the fact that after 10 years, there may be five or six studies about math education. Um, because of the fact that these randomized control trials tend to be very expensive and um, aren't there are a lot of districts that don't want to randomize with students because they feel like you're you know playing with kids lives so there are a lot of kind of downsides to setting these very high standards how do you think about kind of where's the right place to set these standards and then with your practitioners how are you working with them to kind of set standards for what they're looking at not having them do you know customer satisfaction surveys having them do something that's rigorous enough to be considered good evidence. Right, so, so our centre specifically is going to focus on trials, but um, I think for, for, for national repositories, you definitely want to set the standard well short of a trial. There are many, many circumstances where you have a really good idea that just can't be subjected to testing. I mean, for example, the states that have rolled out, there can be no ra randomised control trial of marijuana legalisation, right, and there's still plenty that really good research that will come from those states. Um, the, the idea is to really weed out the, um, the kinds of work I think all of us could agree on not belonging there, um, that, that it really isn't okay if the organization that's selling, that's making $24 million a year from this product is posting. Um, I think that's the sort of standard most of us could agree on, at least that there's at least some form of independent evaluation. It would be really nice if those are replicated. I mean, I think we've learned this from Hawaii. You know, not everything replicates, and what's good for Colorado might be different for Arizona. Um, so I've seen rep replication, so we know when something really is generalizable and when we have to be more careful is good too. So I think setting the standard short of that. For randomized controlled trials, the sort of trials we're talking about, some of them can be really just small operational tweaks. I mean, they don't often you know, involve something particularly complicated for the agencies. In that case, it's relatively easy for them to do. They have the buy-in, they have the access to their own data. All that we do is we equip, equip them with the tools to do that well and remind them of the sorts of things you want to pay attention to, like making sure you actually maintain the integrity of condition assignment. But they're quick studies. You know, I think the worst thing, uh, the worst expression, I found this really obnoxious, and you probably hear it too because so many of you get ready for presentations, dumbing it down for government. It actually makes me really mad now. When I hear the word dumbing it down because we're giving a presentation to, to civil servants, they are smart, most, they are super smart, they're interested, and they all want the same things we do, and that is positive outcomes for these people whose lives we can affect. And um, I think we have to have more respect for our practitioners and recognize that they can do a lot to help us shape the evidence base. Um, so we've spent a lot of time um, talking about the end of the criminal justice process, so more of the corrections part, but I was wondering if we could take a step back and um, talk more about the beginning and more of the investigative phase. So um, I know that Angela Hawkins has mentioned that there's a lot of new technologies that offer a lot of opportunity for evaluation, but I know they also offer a lot of opportunity for um, investigative techniques we didn't have before, use the use of electronic surveillance. So I was wondering if um, someone could talk to how that's changed the policy landscape with regards to 
um, criminal investigations, particularly with concerns about privacy and um, safety? Well, I can I can talk about that. I mean, obviously, there, are, uh, uh, you know, in, in this country, people are are fiercely protective of their of their privacy, and that's that's a good thing. Um, you know, we we have not we are not willing to accept the level of monitoring that that folks in Europe and Britain do, and and that's great. And, and one of the reasons that we're not willing to is because we haven't been through what they've been through. You know, absent 9-11, uh, you know, we haven't seen the, the issues that they've seen. I hope we never get there. Um, but but these are decisions that, that I think is really important for uh, a police department or, or any law enforcement to, to vet with the public. You, you know, I, do I think that there's going to be widespread public surveillance in 50 years? Absolutely. You know, I don't think there's any Anybody that, that sees what's going on and in technology and how omnipresent it is, and you know, it's very rare now that we have a, a major crime that is not captured on somebody's video somewhere, uh, and and that's going to continue and that's going to evolve, and pretty soon it'll be the extreme rarity when something is not captured. But you can't do it until the public is ready for it, because it, it is my firm belief that. That the most important thing in policing is 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 not necessarily um, detailed knowledge. It's public trust. You know, the, one of the reasons that we've had so much success, I think, in Los Angeles is because the public feels more invested in its own safety, and that comes from public trust. If the, if you don't trust your law enforcement. Then you don't cooperate, then and you don't take any ownership for your own safety because you know that's 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 not that's not your job. So you know I think it's uh, I think that all of that has to be vetted, all of it has to be is put out in the court of, of public opinion. Do I think that that we're going to see a, a a new world? Our children will see a very new world about uh, the amount of information that's available. Well, of course. I mean, we've all seen, just the last 10 years, it just explodes, you know, and it'll continue to do that. But you've got to take it one step at a time. Okay, I know that we have a question here. I'd like to ask Chief Becker's views on the potential implications and ramifications of the uh, legalization of marijuana in our jurisdiction. You know, um, I, I look at it from a, a little different uh, viewpoint. Uh, you know, we have uh, I don't know how many medical marijuana facilities in in uh, in Los Angeles. Certainly hundreds, and they are a very dangerous place. Uh, we had a, a murder in one two weeks ago, and and that is not that uncommon. It's really got nothing to do with marijuana. It's all about money. You know, you have a you have a crop that that shouldn't be any more expensive to grow than lettuce or tobacco, and that sells for hundreds of dollars an ounce and more. And because of that, and because of the the federal government's um, policies about being able to bank profits from these places, in other words, it's a cash business because you can't use credit cards and you have to use cash. You create a place that is. A magnet for crime, you know. They're they're they are just too easy. There's just too much money there. The product is just too valuable. You know, if we're going to do this, we need to address that because it makes a. You know, I I think one of the things that that um, that didn't get said here is is one of the things that I look for, especially in Colorado and Washington, is to see what happens when the American farmer becomes involved in this crop, and and when that happens. You know, hopefully, the price will plummet, and the violence that that accompanies this product will diminish. and And I don't see I don't see that topic being discussed. and And I guarantee that before another two or three months are out, we'll have another murder or violent robbery at a at a medical marijuana facility. It'll be no different if it was a legal facility because the the price is still high. You know, the, 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 
the market has set a, a, an, un, an artificially high value on this product. And until that is fixed, we're going to have violent crime associated with it. You're going to have uh, crime, you know, organized crime involved with it. And, um, you know, in this case, money is the root of the evil. Angela, I see you have a... Um, I, I think the chief will be happy to know that there actually have been studies now that haven't made it to daylight yet of the marijuana farmers, of the of the cultivators, and looking at economies of scale. So what would it take to get prices down to where you absolutely will be meeting the, uh, beating the illegal market? And um, it, it does seem to be the case that you, it's, you, you're never going to get there with a kind of 1,000 square feet under lights sort of farming scenario. It's going to be massive outdoor farming that's going to do that. And Washington State initially in their regulations only allowed for very small scale production and very quickly um, in, in those meetings it was clear that that to, to do what they needed to do they would have to take this outdoors and had much 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 larger scale production I think we had one here in the front row sure um, another piece of the criminal justice system the DA's offices and the uh, courts and I wonder are there measurables there that anyone's looking at and are there any interesting trends happening there um, similar to what we're seeing in police work can you give an example of specifically what you're referring to what, what sort of measures are you Well, interested? you know, there are budget cutbacks in L.A. The, oh, court, the court system's been changing as a result of that. Um, I'm not sure if the DA's offices are suffering um, similar things as well. There are changes in practice and policy. And I know, Chief, you might not want to talk about this, but if you could without getting yourself in trouble, <laughs> it would be interesting. Well, you know, the, the, the courts have been severely impacted, and, and, of course, that impacts me. You know, I about 25% of my... Uh, overtime is because of court time, and, and the courts are, are are very crowded, and the dockets are very full, and you know cases take uh, an interminable amount of time to 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 move through the system. Um, I think that there is a, I think there is a, a lot that could be improved in that system. I think you know that we have to look at the way we select juries, look at at um, you know at at what we put in place to make this as good a system as we think it is, but it's also become a very cumbersome, you know, system that that doesn't value outputs. You know, it 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 values its process, but but nobody holds it accountable for for any kind of uh, speed. So, you know, I think we have to have a balance. You know, you, you never want you we don't want to give up process. We don't want to, you know, uh, we don't want to. Uh, to become a third world justice system, but but we have to have some efficiencies, and, and so I think that that discussion needs to be had. And you know, I think that's you know, there, if if I was to ask for research, I'd ask for research on on the, the criminal justice process from top to bottom, and, and and to get efficiencies out of it. I'd ask for research on gun crime to to find out, you know, to and we have this huge epidemic of gun crime in the United States, and we don't do any studies on it because of you know various political issues. And if, if we were to look at those two things, we could reform what happens here, but there, but neither of them get looked at. So we have a question here. I thought I heard a concern sort of voiced about uh, the long-term incarceration, even in the county sales, and the impacts on those who would be incarcerated for shorter terms. Are we tracking the recidivism rates going three years in? Are we starting to track the recidivism rates of institutions with longer-term incarcerated populations at the county level? And do we even have the baseline let data from before to be able to say, you know what, maybe you know, the issue is not prisons versus jail, because I was actually confused by that comment until you clarified, but the issue is really long-term incarceration versus short-term car incarceration and the impacts on, on recidivism rates. Well, so we, we've indicated, you know, the United States has the highest incarceration rate in the world. Um, we are five to ten times higher than uh, other Western democracies. And so the question is why? One is that we have much more violent crime. So if you look at violent crime compared to violent crime, we're actually not particularly punitive where we really differ is on drug crime. So now we're backing out of kind of the war on drugs, and so our prison population is, is uh, declining as a result. But the other reason we have such a high incarceration rate is what you raise, is we, are, we have much more lengthy 
prison terms than any other country. So our average prison term in the United States is about, is about two and a half years. Um, but that's the average. We have about actually about 30% of the prison population is serving 15 years or longer, and that's almost unheard of in other countries. So, so then the question is, what are we getting for that, right? I mean, do people that serve longer terms have lower recidivism rates? They actually do, but only because they age. And the biggest factor, if you want to look at recidivism rates, is to get people to age, right? I mean, very. there's almost, you know, the recidivism rates of a 20-year-old versus a 30 versus a 40 versus a 50 go down almost 10% per decade. So by the time you're a 40 to 50-year-old, your recidivism rate is about 10 to 20% versus a recidivism rate of a 20-year-old, which is about 60%. So it just goes down. So lengthening terms gives you a very low recidivism rate, but doesn't necessarily mean that the term itself did anything. Um, I think we're going to see, one of the things that we're really seeing now in California that we haven't talked about yet, um, we've talked about realignment, but the governor is actually doing his own realignment um, in that he is shortening terms pretty consistently. So people that are coming up for life, we have, we have about 25% of everybody in California prisons who are doing a term of life with the possibility of parole. So they're, they're called lifers. And, and the governor has the, we're only one of two states where the governor can deny release even when the parole board has recommended that they be released. And so the governor, Governor Brown, in the last couple of years, very much contrary to his predecessors, is basically agreeing with 80% of the uh, decisions that the parole board makes. So when the parole board says release them, which is shortening length of time, sir, Governor Brown is agreeing with them. So length of sentences in California is actually going down pretty precipitously in California now and, is, and will go down even more. So we'll be able to test, it's a long answer, but we'll be able to test whether or not it is the length of sentence serve because we're going to actually have people that were identical that serve long terms versus short terms and we'll be able to look at their recidivism rates um, but we've not been able to do that before because basically people have just been um, all remaining in for for very lengthy terms um, so we haven't we haven't really looked at that except for looking at age well I'd like to thank our panelists uh, for being with us today, and I'd like to thank our audience, for our alumni for returning, and for our graduates to, to celebrate your accomplishments. So thank you. Thank you. This presentation is provided as a public service by the RAND Corporation. To learn how you can attend programs at RAND, visit us online at www.rand.org events.